Peace. Welcome to another episode of Bootstraps. I'm your host, the Nefriesian. And before we get into today's episode, I have two quick favors to ask. Please subscribe to the podcast. And if you're on Instagram, go on over and give us a follow at Bootstraps Podcast. So today's episode is about diversity and inclusion. And I got to tell you, this is a rich time to hold this conversation. There is a mass awakening right now that was sparked by a series of murders of black people in America. Ahmaud Arbery. Then you had Breonna Taylor. And then you had the murder of George Floyd in broad daylight, fully caught on camera. Um, and it took place in, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And it has brought about uh, a broader awakening in, in our country and globally around Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter has been around for a few years, but it's often been dismissed by many people in our society. And there's been a retort of all lives matter. And that retort was tone deaf and insensitive and oftentimes disingenuous because the point of Black Lives Matter is not saying that Black Lives Matter more than others. It's acknowledging the plain truth that Black people have had to live with in this country throughout its entire history. That our lives don't matter as much as others in terms of the way in which we're treated. But there is hope. There is this new awakening that has happened and there's an opportunity for us to start to dismantle systemic oppression that's targeted at black people and that's set up in a way to make sure that black people have worse outcomes in life. We have all these corporations who are coming out now who are making full-throated statements and to be really transparent, black people, we see them for what they are. We see them as new. We see them as potential olive branches. But we're also aware there's a a certain amount of skepticism that we have with respect to these statements because we want to see if the actual work is going to be done to start to dismantle systemic oppression and to create a more just and equitable society that black people can exist in and belong in. So I won't belabor the point. Today's conversation is really rich and dynamic. Let's get into it. Yo, peace, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Bootstraps. Brother, why don't you tell everybody your name? What's going on, everybody? This is uh, Courtney Schroeder. That's what's up. And uh, what, do you, what do you do, man? Yeah, so I, uh, I work at General Mills, and I do uh, diversity and inclusion. And so, um, you know, my job is a mix of a uh, little bit of recruiting and strategic partnerships, uh, but then really just kind of the core work at DNI, everything from representation and affirmative action planning um, to working with our employee networks to unconscious bias and, and really thinking about um, our inclusion strategy and how we bring it to life. Okay, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a big role in general. I think folks have been trying to solve you know, this puzzle for a while now. Um, but I think also in light of 
you know, the past few weeks, like that is, that is, I can see your role being even more vital and more important to an organization. Um, I, I'd, I'd heard it once said that, you know, diversity is being invited to the party and inclusion is being invited to dance. How do you think about that? Was some of philosophical framing around DNI? How do you think about diversity and inclusion? Yeah, I've heard. Um, you know, I think that analogy brings it to life. The one I've heard that um, is slight twist on it is diversity very much being invited to the party. Um, inclusion is being asked to dance, and then belonging is in uh, playing your music or mm. you dancing like nobody's watching, right? And so, um, if you take it to that next step of you know, how do you actually get to a place where you can dance like no one's watching or they're playing your music where you, uh, you know, it's, a, it's a, that layered on feeling. And it's, um, you know, it's much easier to feel. It's a little bit harder to describe. It's almost like they say, you know, it when you see it. Yeah. Yeah. And no, I, I think it's, that's a deep point. I never thought about it that way. We have this thing at my company where it says, bring your full self to work. And I, by and large, do that at least more than I have at any other company ever in my life. Um, but I remember stating in the interview process, you know, that whole belonging piece, like dancing, like no one's watching. They asked, mm-hmm. they asked the question, like, which one of our like company values do you think it would be, is going to be the hardest for you? And I was like bringing my full self to work. And I proceeded to share, like, look, being a black man in America, mm-hmm. you know, just from my upbringing, I've been taught to be, kind of two people, no matter what. And it's, mm-hmm. it's, really, it's really uncomfortable bringing your full self to work. So when you think about, you know, the way in which you describe diversity and inclusion, adding this extra component of belonging, you know, I, I think there's something profound there. Yeah, and you know, the, the piece is too, I think one of the things that people are finding themselves dealing with right now is, it is a, it's real easy to talk about inclusion, right? You can, you can go out and talk about inclusion just like we talk about equality. Right. You can go out and say we need equality. We have we have to fight for equality, just like you can say we're going to build this culture of inclusion. But honestly, what really comes down to is the day to day experience of people with their peer set and their manager. And, um, you know, when you can have leaders who support it, that's a huge step. But until this makes its way down into the organization, I mean, people actually feel that culture and actually feel that belonging. Um, You know what? It's unfortunately just words on the paper. Um, you got to really make it come to life. Yes, it's an interest. So what I, what I hear in that is like commitment, like it not being a nice to have, like priority. Because when, when something is a priority, you take on the discomfort to make it happen. It's like, like running your errands, right? When it's a priority to get your errands done, errands ran on a Saturday morning, you know, you get up out your, your sweats or your PJs, you go out and you make it happen. You deal with whatever the discomfort is to to get those priorities kind of checked off the list. And when something's not a priority, it, it may or may not, you know, fall fall down the list. So if you're trying to bring about diversity, inclusion, and belonging, then you're going to have to force it down throughout the entire organization and make some of the tough choices. Like everyone's going to have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Right. Yep. So that we can make everyone else feel more comfortable. Well, and I, I think the tough part for, for D&I as a function is that, you know, really D&I and there's a book uh, out there by Pamela Newkirk called Diversity Inc. And it, it does a great job of outlining diversity initiatives across 
uh, government, business, Hollywood, uh, sports. Um, but really, if you think about diversity and where it came from, it actually came from a, ple a place of government regulation. It came from a fear of actual legal repercussion. It came from a place where companies uh, did not want to get sued or um, did not want to lose federal contracts because they weren't actually seen um, or meeting the mark. Or actually, really what it was was active discrimination against certain employees, right? And there's a whole litany of legal cases that, that back that up. And what you now have shifted to is this realization done because of a lot of work by uh, great Black women authors and, and, and researchers is that we actually are better off uh, with diversity, like literally racial, ethnic, gender, and, you know, um, sexual orientation, that diversity actually makes us better. And so now organizations are trying to figure out how to make this work. Um, and, you know, the one, the smart ones are realizing that if they don't make this work, they will lose. It is only a matter of time um, where you will get caught, uh, caught out, you'll get called out if you're not able to bring people together who have a diversity of experience, backgrounds, and racial and ethnic backgrounds to the table and get them to operate effectively as a team. Yes. You know, and you, and you can't have a team operate effectively if there's no trust. And you, you need to have that culture built. You need to have people genuinely able to connect and show up authentically um, for this to happen. And I firmly believe it. I firmly believe that the companies who get this right, uh, they will win. And the companies who are dragging their feet, uh, they'll be dinosaurs. Huh. The thing that I find really, there are a few things that are in there that really stick out to me. And I'm going to just choose to hop on this one first around diversity being um, important to be able to win. I've always likened it in my career and brand. Like, I believe in collaboration fundamentally. I, I think that two minds, all things being equal, two minds are better than one, four are better than two. So getting folks together to, to collaborate and perform as a high-functioning team, what you're going to come up with, with through collaboration and the collective genius is going to be so much better than if you have one really smart person going to sit in the corner by themselves. But somehow, you know, and collaboration has been the buzzword in marketing and corporate America for the past 15-plus years, if not longer. But I know in my time in, in corporate America has been the past 15 years or so, everyone talks about collaboration, but they somehow don't translate that collaborative mindset to, and like what's the actual magic of collaboration, being able to pull from the experiences of multiple people. They don't translate that to diversity. And so then when you look at through a cultural lens, you are missing out on all these other viewpoints because the dominant culture is the only voice that really gets to speak up. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, and, uh, what you end up seeing a lot happen to that point about you know, um, you know, great organizations and organizations who do engagement surveys can build in engagement questions to sense. And the, the part you brought up about bringing your authentic self to work, we ask employees, right? The, the, the researchers out there just ask employees um, a question similar to something like, um, I feel the need to downplay one or more aspects of my cultural identity at work, right? And just see how it, see how it turns out. See what mm -hmm. happens between your employees' Um, you know, who are majority white and your employees who are black, uh, Asian or um, Hispanic or Latinx, right? Like you will find differences in, in that that still holds very much to be true. And what happens is, you know, I'll, I'll give Renee Brown credit because she's a she does so much work in this area. But she said the opposite of belonging is fitting in. Mm. So you, you spend all this money. We, we, we spend all this time, all this energy. Um, to recruit. And then this is my knock on tech. You know, someone once said at a DNI conference that if all it took was money to figure this out, 
Tech would have figured this out a while ago. Mm. Right. But when you look at, you know, tech is very open about their numbers and those numbers haven't budged. And that's not because of a lack of dollars. Right. You know, they, they're going out, they're trying to find pipelines, they're doing a lot of right things. But it comes back to that point about, you know, the person's day to day experience with their coworkers and manager will dictate how they experience the company. Mm. And until you actually have actions where, you know, you can bring in black females to be programmers. But if that programmer culture um, treats her as the other, if that programming culture is never able allowing her to actually feel like she can be um, her, her, her true self, her real self, that she has to do things to fit in, um, that's not a culture that'll keep her. Right. Right. No matter what the prestige, no matter what the dollars, you know, um, especially talent, great talent knows it has options. And that and I think another piece that we shouldn't ignore is that there's a lot of black talent who comes into corporate America who leaves corporate America because they feel too restricted by corporate America. Mm. They feel like they, 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 you add in the other societal factors and corporate America, and they know they're talented enough and they believe in themselves enough that they'll go be an entrepreneur. Right. You know, at least I can be my own boss. At least I don't have to deal with that climate, that culture. You know, corporate America loses so much black talent simply because um, they were looking for something where they can actually be who they really are. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's real. I, I've, I've always looked at it through the lens of you don't really want black people. You want people who think and move just like you to happen to have black skin, right? And that's not a blanket statement to say everyone is that way or every corporation is that way, not even close. But when I look at the way in which a lot of folks have approached, have approached diversity, like, that's how they've approached it, where it's like, mm-hmm. okay, so we have these established norms, assuming that those established norms within that dominant culture are the best way to do it or the, the right way, that they're superior, you know? So when you go start trying to bring other people in from other cultures and they think and move differently than you, it's like you initially reject it as opposed to, like, understanding why are they thinking and moving this way and what is the value? of approaching that particular perspective. So you just, those people didn't get shunned. They feel like they don't belong and they go start their own thing. And the only ones who do stay either, you know, they happen to have grown up in a culture that was just like the dominant culture. They just happen to have black skin or they deal with the toxicity of fitting in, right? As opposed to being their true self, which is mad unfortunate. Well, you know, you're calling out a really good point. And I do think uh, one of my biggest frustrations being in DNI, and I actually, you know, you and I talked about this. You talked, we talked before I went into DNI. I gave you my thoughts after a year, two years. I'm now two and a half years in. And I, I do have a lot of um, criticism just because I think there is ways that this function and this, um, you know, ideology can come to life better. But um, I do think people gloss over the actual studies that are done, right? So when there is research out there, when they're, they're researching, and a big piece of this research is, is that diversity will create conflict. You will have this conflict, right? right. But you should not be scared of that conflict. That conflict is how you actually drive um, more meaningful progress, right? So you need to know how to manage that conflict. And everyone's so scared of conflict. Everyone's scared of people butting heads. Uh, but that's exactly where the goal is. And I know you as a marketer, you know, some of your best work, I imagine, 
you went back and forth with someone where you were you were going and they were going toe to toe with you. And um, it would been the eighth, ninth round. And, you know, finally somebody won. But you realize that you both came out of it. And the idea was how much better. Right. The execution was going to be that much better because you had that chance to, to, to duke it out. Absolutely. I mean, that's where I draw the correlation between uh, collaboration and diversity, because on, on my team, I I staunchly level set that facts matter. And if you have facts and rationale on your side, not only are you allowed in air quotes to, to disagree with me, you're required to disagree with me because that's where the best, I don't think that I have all the answers. Matter of fact, I know for a fact that I don't have all the answers. So I want that collaboration and the best work that has been done on my team has been when People are disagreeing. It's like, well, okay, you know, I, I, the way I looked at it accounted for like 75% of the problem, but you, you pointed out there's this gap. And the way in which you're looking at it doesn't account for 100% of the problem either, but it does expose this like 25% gap in my thinking. And so let's look at it. And then we push it back and forth, and someone else chimes in and we work it back and forth. And then we end up in this final place where it's like rock solid and it's definitely mm-hmm. better. And it actually moves the business. Um, but I think you need to have comfort with that. And I think the, the opposite of collaboration is consensus, right? And that's where it's like everyone just agrees. And no one, it's, a, it's about just everyone getting along. And you end up with this, oftentimes, this very vanilla middle of the road position because you are uncomfortable with dealing with the conflict and the, the disagreement of collaboration. Because you need to have the rules in place to make sure you're being respectful of folks. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not you're not being disagreeable in your disagreement. Um, I think there's a, a quote that uh, Martin Luther King made famous. You're, you're not being disagreeable and being rude, but having that friction definitely leads to a, a better outcome. But uh, let's let's double click here for a second, though. As you being a being a black man in DNI and um. I want to, I want to understand in the context of what's going on right now. Like for the past couple of weeks, it's not just, and you're in Minneapolis too, where this all sparked off mm-hmm. with the murder of George Floyd. It's not just in Minneapolis. It's not just in the Midwest or the United States. This has gone global. People are in Australia. People over in Europe. People in Africa. Like. This has sparked like a movement. It, it's 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 hit a nerve. It kind of changed. It's, it's it's like a it's been a step function change in the level of awareness um, around systemic oppression and racism and the things that um, black men and black people, excuse me, not just men, black people in particular, have been dealing with. How how has that affected you being in this DNI space, being a black male professional? Like, how are you viewing it? I guess it would be the. I want to hear about your unique perspective as a black man working in DNI at this very unique time in history. <sighs> um, right now, so there's a. Let's let's just go around the wheel a bit. So let me tell you from the personal side, just my my personal Courtney Schroeder, the human being. Um, you know, I am. Um, I've been engaged in this kind of work. I'll call it social justice work, protest work, as part of just who I am for the better part of, you know, if I'm 37, about 20 years, right? I really got active when I hit college at UC Santa Barbara, which 
besides being a party school, uh, is also very much a social, a socially conscious, aware and progressive, um, you know, get out there and actually raise your voice school. Um, and so for me, you know, I couldn't be, um, you know, of course, the feelings of anger, frustration. I watched Philando Castile's death. I watched Jamar Clark's video. I lived a, a, around the corner from where Jamar Clark was taken uh, back in 20, I want to say it was 2015, 2016. And uh, watching that video, just, you know, my blood has boiled over so many times. And so for to see what I'm seeing now, just the conversation that has escalated so fast and is moving in a direction, I never thought this conversation would move this quickly. Um, and in large part driven by, you know, I do think as Black people look around the world, we do realize now that other people are standing with us. This is not Black people marching solo um, down the street. This is a collective right. of people who are using their voices and bringing it to the cause. Some of them people are starting fires where they shouldn't be. That's a whole nother conversation. But the point for me is I have, um, it is making me question some of the old systems and tapes I had in my mind about what would be possible. Mm. If you would have said, hey, in two weeks, we can change the national conversation about policing in America and fundamentally revisit our relationship with the police, I would have told you, no, when pigs fly, mm. I would have told you this was never going to happen. No way. I've been out there. I've talked to these people. I'm sitting in the meetings trying to change, create change. And the system doesn't move that fast. Well, guess what? The system can move that fast. Yeah. And when, when I think of it like that, there's a piece of me that's very much, what else should we be asking for, demanding, right now organizing against? Mm. You know, what, what can we actually do? We just say today is the day we're going to end racism. A question I would have never thought. I would have thought I was crazy for asking that question. But what if we said we're going to get rid of structural inequity? What would that have to look mm. like? What would that conversation look like? And so a piece of me right now is uh, just as fired up, also knowing that I hedge my bets because uh, there's also a chance I'll be let down, which I have been many, many, many a time. But right now there's a, a hopeful piece of me, and that's Courtney the person. Uh, Courtney the DNI practitioner, it has been one of the most fascinating moments in time for DNI, right? And I think what's happening across the board is you have some DNI practitioners who are being called to task. Right. They're being called out and being their companies are looking at them and saying, what are we doing uh, to actually move our culture forward and to move our business forward? And um, for the people who don't have plans, um, I think you're going to get exposed. I think this is the time where, you know, people who haven't been pushing, people who aren't, you know, doing the research and the, the hard work of connecting the business and making that case and getting the resources they're going to be called the task and some of them might not make it through this. And, you know, I hate to say, but that it is what it is, right? You got a job to do. You need to do that job. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's real. Cause like, what have you been doing? Like, I, I don't think that everyone needs to um, be mission driven. I don't think everyone needs to, you know, cloak themselves in righteousness, but if you do, you're going to be held to a standard. Right. Like you can't mm -hmm. you can't cloak yourself in morality and then be just blatantly amoral. And so mm -hmm. um, that actually brings up, you know, we've been hearing a lot about it. And it's, it's, there's been a there's been a shock for black people in general. Right. Because normally we go through this. We've been living in this state of trauma, not to be overly dramatic, but to be actual and factual. We've been living in this state of trauma 
I mean, historically, this has always happened, but it, there's been a unique trauma of the past decade, right? I, as I remember, I think Oscar Grant might have been the first murder that went viral due to someone pulling their phone out and, you know, getting on social media and being able to share it. Because um, even Rodney King, like, we needed the TV stations to push that out. But this has been, like, this people power thing for the past 10 years. But with that, and to get back to my point, we black people have been living through this trauma like every anywhere from one to six months there's this new murder that goes viral and we and we, we watch it and we go through it but finally somehow something about this one broke through i don't know if it was the straw that broke the camel's back or because we're living through the covid crisis everyone being locked in their homes they can't distract themselves with anything else i don't know what it is but this murder like broke through and the trauma that we live through on a regular basis, the whole nation has kind of gone through. And what that has led to is just this massive outcry against racism, like blatant, full throated, like we are against racism. We're going to say black lives matter, like not all lives matter, black lives matter. Because everyone understands that mm-hmm. that statement of Black Lives Matter is not a statement of superiority. It's like you're trying to bring up these lives that have been disenfranchised to bring them towards the level of equality with all these other lives. And so with that, though, there's been all of these statements that have come from companies. And I'm starting to see a lot of, not starting, I've been seeing a, a constant stream of, of backlash on social media from folks who are skeptical. Like, are these companies really just trying to ride this wave and get some marketing dollars? Similar to, like, where, where Nike made a stance, like, we're going to ride with Kaepernick, and they got a lot of backlash, and they didn't back away. And then they saw their sales go up. So folks on social media are skeptical of these companies that are coming out and making these statements about how they support Black Lives Matter. And one of the big statements that they're making is, how do you explain this full-throated support of Black people in your, like, anti-racism but then you look at your leadership and black people are nowhere to be found in your organization how do you think about that discrepancy right now and help 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 other people think about it because you're you're i mean you're in a major corporation that's trying to figure out how to solve this problem so i did not just how do you think about it for your particular corporation but how do you think about it for companies in general yeah, and there's a, I, you know, I, I go back and forth on this. So I do think there's a, a very deep conversation to be had about um, how a company shows up, what they say. I also think a big piece of what you're seeing is a company's understanding that they're consumers. Um, and if you have any portion of a millennial or Gen Z consumer base and you're not figuring out how to navigate these waters, you will be lost. You, you, there is only a matter of time because their expectations of brands and of companies uh, is only becoming more um, more focused, right. right? And so they're they're very focused now. The piece about you know, so if you go down the math, right? So I'm a I'm going to quote you the math I have in front of me from um, there was a great report from the Center for Town Innovation called "Being Black in Corporate America," um, and they did it with you know a number of different uh, groups, including the Executive Leadership Forum or Council. And um, when you look at the math, right, if you said based upon the high school graduation rate, you should have roughly black 50, 50 black CEOs of the Fortune 500. Right. But if you did the whole math, so the U.S. population, black people, to a little over 12 percent, college degrees, 10 percent, professionals, 8 percent, 
mid-level managers, a, a dash above 7%, senior level slash executive level, a dash above 3%, and Fortune 500 CEOs right under 1%, right? And so when you look at the numbers, you, uh, you automatically can see that, you know, unless you're able to expand the view of what a board member should contribute, right, which is a big piece of this, like we all have, every company has a job description or an ideal candidate or a set of qualifications that for years they've held, and that's no different than what you want from your board. Um, and if you limit that population of people can serve, the numbers would tell you um, that that's the reason why you have low board participation. Now, what I don't think companies have done, including for their board, um, have really challenged these, these, these long-held views of what exactly should a board member look like, right? What exactly should be the talent profile um, you know, of that VP? You know, how can we get an effective manager? When you're so focused on you know, a certain set of criteria, which probably has some bias in it, simply because we always have bias in us and these systems have bias in them, um, you end up limiting the population from what you can choose from. And then you wave the flag saying, hey, there's no one qualified to do this, right? And so that we, that, that's the argument you will hear from corporate America on why they don't have greater representation on the board. With that being said, there's a lot of ways you can work to do this, right? There, there is just too many companies who have had too much success with just focused efforts with the right leaders, the right buy-in to create change. Is it, you know, are we talking 50, 70% um, black board representation? No, but are we talking you can actually get to more than what you think your fair share should be based upon your old data? Absolutely, right? And so um, I think the piece is it's really easy to say something. I think back to that point I made earlier, it's real easy to talk about equality and freedom and inclusion for all Right, but the nitty gritty work of challenging your assumptions, of making tough decisions, of going against what you've done in the past because you're looking to try something new because you know this is gonna be the way that your company unlocks value in the future. That's the hard work, that's the tough conversation. That's where you really do need people coming to the table and saying, we need to change how we look at this. We need to change how we hire. We need to change how we onboard. We need to change how we support employees. Right. Right. And that piece of it, um, you don't get headlines. You don't get credit for it. It takes years of hard work. Um, and just for you to move a, a percent, moving the dial on representation, um, it isn't easy, but it's absolutely doable because too many have right. done it. Right. And so um, people can make statements, um, but I think you're going to have to hold people accountable for what have they actually done uh, to support. Those yeah. Statements. Or even. If, if they haven't done it to date and they say they're really with it, it's about what they're going to do going forward. But before we move on for that point, because I want to double click a little more on it, is I think the funnel you just laid out will go from 12% to 10, then they came down to like 8 or 7, and then under 5, and then under 3, and then just under 1. Like, so what's happening is there's something systematically that's happening that's Mm -hmm. all along the way. So long before we get to the board, there's an issue with going from college graduate to like mid-level manager. Like why are these college graduates mm -hmm. not making it to mid-level management? And why are these mid-level managers not making it to senior management? Right? And then ultimately, then you have this really, because you got to be, in, if you're going to, I think you should pull your board members from, you know, senior level management. Like, like there's a certain level of expertise that 
that you need. But then what's happening along the way long before you get to that? Because that's a, I think that to be blunt, there's a double clicking that needs to be done. And I'm pretty sure if you do that double clicking, which what you'll, my hypothesis going in would be that there are um, explicit and implicit biases. We've seen so many different studies that's been done where you send out the exact same resume, one with a black sounding name, one with a white sounding name, the exact same resume. You just change the names. On one end, you see all this hope and promise and all this raw talent. On the other end, all the black sounding name, you can see the typos. But it's literally the exact same resume. Well, the exact same resume. Yeah. Yeah. No. So go ahead. The the bias of the bias is real, man. No, it's a uh, biases. And actually, if you look at a lot of studies, will tell you if you want you ask people of color, you ask black employees, what is one thing you would want your organization just to just go if they could tackle one issue? Bias is the one that pops mm. up. Bias is the one that people want because they know that bias exists, right? And it's really hard to function in a system that is. Um, you know, sometimes overtly bias against you, right? And so um, that is absolutely a real Yeah, so lies. that kind of leads in to the next question I have for you. Like, if there are, there are three things, right? Because I, I, don't, I don't want us to lose this moment. So if there, there are all of these companies that are coming out and like full throat. I was shocked. I remember I actually was so shocked and, and wowed by the statement that Best Buy came out with relatively early, like before the tidal wave of everyone else mm-hmm. making a statement, it was full-throated. And I was like, well, and I shared it on uh, my LinkedIn page. And I don't even have a relationship with anyone at Best Buy. I just saw this thing. I read the statement. I was like, this is pretty impressive. And so whether or not Best Buy, and I don't, I don't have any, any idea what the composition of their board is, but I do know there have been stats that have been floating around. And particular companies are being called out. Like, okay, this is your statement, but then this is your board. If people are trying to actually move forward, let's get off of just the, the, the board, like the narrow framing of just looking at people's boards and saying like, all right, company X, maybe to date you have not been the best about addressing systemic racism, but you want to be a part of the solution going forward. And your statement is earnest that you are committed to Black Lives Matter and you're committed to dismantling systemic racism and oppression. What are, you know, a couple of things, two to three things that you would advise, because I know it's going to be a lot of things they have to do, but two to three things that you would advise a company to focus on to try and be more inclusive. And for, for black people in particular. For black people in particular. Well, let me start with this first one, because I, uh, I unfortunately, I hold, you know, I have an open door. So I talk to a lot of different people who are navigating how to do bring DNI to their company. A lot of times, small organizations, they don't have a lot of resources, sometimes big that you think should have this covered. And, um, you know, people come to me and say, do I start with bias? Do I start with, you know, um, our hiring practices? And I'm like, if you don't go back and start with a strategy, like if mm-hmm. you don't, it, it, there's still a fundamental piece to business, right? And this is for me, um, very much rooted in my time in Michigan, but also in what my my concept of what business is, which is in large part based upon Drucker, which is, you know, businesses serve at the leisure of society. And the real purpose of a business isn't profit, profit maximization, but it's in the service of a customer, mm. right? And until you um, you start with your, your strategy, right? So what for you is a DNI strategy that ties back to your business? If you are not able to tie what you're doing back to your business, you are literally throwing darts uh, with a blindfold on and you're going to be lucky if mm. you hit anything. 
right? And so you you have to start with a strategy. And I think anybody in any corporation or in any complex organization anywhere should be starting with damn strategy. And I, I shouldn't have to tell people that. I'm sorry for saying damn, but <laughs> I, I'm going to be you honest. Like, how do you not have a strategy, right? So start with inclusion strategy. Um, and in that strategy, you'll end up probably getting to a few pieces, right? You're going to get to your hiring practices. You're going to get to your cultural practices, um, and then you're going to get to, you know, how does your DNI strategy serve your consumers, right? And so, um, so I'd start there. I think the next piece that companies have to figure out what to do is, and it's been super powerful, and a lot of companies do it, is uh, figure out a way to have a conversation about this, right? And so, and and I say that meaning that, you know, if you, um, I find that corporations right now, and it's going to be really interesting to see what happens in this time period. Corporations are taking on the role of what government Uh used to take on, right? And you could actually say and point to right now the environment that you have more corporations leading than you do the actual federal government. I think you can look at it in terms of what we're talking about with race. Like we have never as a country had any kind of opportunity or institution that created these conversations and, you know, uh, Howard Ross, he's a great DNI author, someone I highly recommend. He writes in his book that, you know, this is where you have to get it right. You have to get it right in the workplace, mm. right? If you don't get this right in the workplace, it comes back to what we're talking about. You won't have that team dynamic. You won't be able to create a culture of innovation. Um, you have to figure out how to get people to work together. And it's really hard to get people to work together if they can actually have conversations like this, because that's where we're at in society yep. now. There's too much weight on black employees for a corporation to walk around and their coworkers to walk around like nothing happened. Anybody who's listening to this who's a black person who had to walk around the last two weeks and nobody at work acknowledged what you were going through, my personal, I'm, I'm shouting you out right now because I feel right. That is a place of loneliness. That is a place of isolation. That is a place that's actually the contrary of belonging, right? And so... Um, and now we got to the, the piece is, is that, you know, you got to teach people how to have this conversation. Right. And that's been a, the, a huge challenge for me at work right now is that, you know, even in my moment where I could actually use some personal time, some reflective space, um, you know, I'm helping others trying to figure out how to go yeah. on their journey. Right. And how to figure out how to talk about this. And, um, you know, honestly, that can be that can be draining. So my, 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 my big piece is one, have a strategy. Two, uh, figure out how to have conversations around this. Um, but three, from there, there's there's too much literature out there, right? You need to tackle bias. You need to tackle your hiring practices. You need to track representation or think about what representation should look like at your organization and how are you going to create plans to drive to that representation? Like, what would that actually yep. look like? And so, um, a whole host of things. But if you ain't got a strategy, uh, you're dead in the water. So, I yeah, the interesting that. thing that I hear in that is. You know, some of my, uh, I mean, my grandma didn't invent it. It's, it's, been, it's been said a thousand times, but um, it's an old cliche. But when there's a will, there's a way, right? So if, when you have a strategy and your strategy is grounded in, like, ultimately, like, your business's purpose, which goes back then to priorities, right? So if, if you see, if your priority is to grow as a business and to achieve these particular goals, and you understand how DNI ties back to that fundamental business's purpose, then you develop a strategy. That's where your will comes from. That's what that's what motivates you. And then everything else will will flow. And if I were trying to synopsize what you said, 
because then you'll be willing to have those conversations because you understand if we don't have these uncomfortable conversations, we're going to have even more uncomfortable conversations because our business is going to be failing. Mm -hmm. And then once you have those conversations, you'll then figure out how to do the hard work of actually implementing uh, platforms and tactics and executing to deliver all the way back. And the discomfort that comes with that, you realize if we don't deal with that discomfort, we're going to have to deal with the discomfort of declining, you know, revenue, profit, share, whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. And it, it is an interesting point that consumers are ultimately holding these companies responsible. And there's this interesting inflection point that it started with millennials in terms of being attitudinally more diverse, but then you go to Gen Z, they are physically mm -hmm. more diverse and they're just as attitudinally as diverse as millennials, but from a composition, I want to say it's 51% of folks under the age of 20 are of mixed race or a person of color. 49% um, are white. And, and when you look at that 49%, you know, I can't speak on all of them, but I'm going to tell you right now that these uh those white kids yeah. are allies, right? There's going to be a chunk of them who are out in these streets right now, and you've seen it in their generation more than in that. And that's actually the hope. That's what Obama yep. was telling them. He's like, you are, and there is no way they're going to go through COVID and now going through this, about to start. Think about, you know, these, these young people about to start college, right? And imagine going on your college journey right after COVID and this civil and national and global unrest over the, the killing of George Floyd, right? Like you, um, you're, you're there shaping the world and your expectations of the workplace, your expectations of the brands, your expectations of the companies you want to do yep. business with. You show, you better, and, and, and that's the other thing is you're seeing a lot of companies who got caught mm. flat footed um, because they didn't have a serious conversation and they didn't have that at the board level. They didn't have it at the C-suite level. They didn't yeah. have it at all, right? And it is, it is you were, this moved too fast. I think that's the other piece of this is that I don't think anyone saw something move so quickly where within a week, you were actually way <laughs> behind the curve if all you right. did was speak out, right? Like if you don't speak out now, you better speak out like babynames.com, right. right? You you speak out and all you got is words. You better say some Ben right. Jerry right. words. Right. Because any other cliche, you know, statement is going to be, you know, it's, it's going to be looked at. People will see it. It might do people things for your, your employee base. But you know what? That that ship is passed. You know that we're on to what is actually. Yeah. You know, it, it reminds me of because I, I, I see marketing and culture as being synonymous. Maybe marketing sometimes could be illicit um, and people use the craft of marketing to to push and promote things that that suck, but ultimately marketing and culture are, are one and the same because it's, I mean, it's tied to your environment. And, and if you're doing your job right, you're solving people's needs. And where I'm going with this is around, you know, this concept of like evolution and your environment. And if you're, if you're overly adapted to a particular environment, an environment in which you can do things like no matter how many times Colin Kaepernick said, I am taking a knee to peacefully protest I'm doing this as a sign of respect. This this former Green Beret or Navy SEAL, I forget what the, the former military officer, actual branch of military was, actually advised me to take a knee because this is what we do when, um, when, when there's a fallen soldier to show respect. So I'm doing this peacefully and respectfully to try and call attention to 
this particular crisis of black lives not mattering and the systemic oppression of black folks. And mm-hmm. people got to just ignore it and say things like all lives matter or just change the topic to make it about the flag and disrespect of the flag when that wasn't even the topic to begin with. That was a playbook that you could run. And I feel like people were, companies in particular, and leaderships within these companies were overdeveloped to that environment. And when you're overdeveloped to an environment and there's a step function change in the environment quickly, you can't adjust, right? And then you're like stuck Mm -hmm. out there. Now, everyone is kind of like flipping the light switch on as opposed to having a dimmer and slowly turning it up. It's going from pitch black to like the light is on. And now everyone is seeing everyone, every corporation and their actions through this different light. And folks are stuck out there and they need to figure out what they're going to do. And hopefully they'll put their, put their proverbial money where their mouth is and they actually follow us up with like committed actions and so on and so forth. Well, and to that point, you know, I do think one of the pieces, uh, so what got me into DNI was, you know, I was a marketer by day and doing a lot of DNI work mm. on the side, right? It was kind of a, a side job. And I, I was able to, you know, take something that I experienced uh, called the YWCA Time to Talk and take a platform that they use and how to drive conversations about race. And I brought it to General Mills. I helped scale it. I test piloted it. And, um, you know, we actually back in, you know, if we're in June 2020, so February 2018, uh, we brought in Nate Boyer, who was um, he was the, uh, the the gentleman who talked to uh, Colin. So when Colin first, if you remember, Colin was, actually yep. didn't kneel at first. Yep. Colin was sitting at first. And so, um, you know, he's a guy who uh, so Nate was, you know, a backup for the Seattle Seahawks and played ball at UT uh, uh, UT. And but it was also uh, it was in the army beforehand, right? And so he uh, he was the one who suggested that you kneel. So we brought in Nate. We couldn't get Colin, but we brought in Nate to have a conversation, and we did it in connection with our Black Champions Network and our Veterans Network. And so we had a table of you know our entire company, but a lot of veterans, a lot of Black employees, having a conversation about kneeling back mm. two years ago, right? And and being up front and having that conversation and people disagree, but people also were able to have and actually exchange ideas and express themselves. Right. And, um, you know, it wasn't perfect, but, you know, I think to our credit, we've created an environment where we've been doing that. Right. There's a little bit of the receipts right there. There's a lot more to it. Um, but I do give us credit for tackling something like that, um, which now you see it. And, you know, the other piece I'll say, man, is, uh, you know, it's, it's it's watching everyone come alive. That that great was a great analogy of the light switch. And both enterprises are waking up right now. Um, but you know what? You it'd be hard to say that you know white America isn't having a moment for itself, right? And there's a, a W. B. Du Bois quote, a Du Bois quote. Uh, it's a hard thing to live haunted by the ghost of an untrue mm. dream. And if you think about you know if you uh, if you didn't have this lens, if you had this lens of a rosy perfect America, you knew there were some faults. Maybe there's a couple of things you didn't like, um, but to have the image of this America, this dream of America come crashing down and the realization of what the black experience has been, um, it is a hard, it is a hard yeah. ghost to live with, right? It's the ghost of an untrue dream. And, and that could be something that um, challenges you to the very core yeah. of who you no, are. I think, I think that's real. It's like the uh, proverbial um, situation where you see your parents in this particular light and you grow up and you realize that they're human with flaws and you find out certain things about your parents that you would have never um, known or assumed. 
Now, if you end up finding out that in this in this metaphor of your parents that there was just just the brutality of it. I actually listened this morning. Just this morning, I listened to uh, a podcast of Steve Kerr, um, Pete Carroll, and Greg Popovich. Um, uh, it's, it's Steve Kerr's and um, Pete Carroll's podcast called Flying Coach. But they're talking about this exact issue. And they're talking about how American history has erased and like produced this dream for and this crisis actually for white America because they what they've erased from the history books is they don't teach of these unpleasant truths that are fundamental to our history and have always been there. It's like, oh, slavery happened a long time ago. Then Martin Luther King gave a speech and now we're all good. You know, that's kind of the broad strokes of how American history has really talked about um, race, in particular white black relations in this country. But they brought up you know, the the massacre of Tulsa, Oklahoma and Black Wall Street and how that's something that fundamentally should be in every history book. But most people right now, I'm I am certain if you are not a pretty well educated black American, chances are you have not heard of the massacre of Tulsa, Oklahoma. And the fact that you don't know it allows you then to have this dream of what American history has been like it's only been this one really good thing because if you look at our documents i mean the constitution i think is one of the most amazing documents ever written but you also it's a it's a luxury to just look at the words and take them at face value and not understand that most of the framers of the constitution actually own black humans as chattel property mm-hmm. and what that mm-hmm. abuse was like and what that meant and that juxtaposition of what american history has been so there's a there's a shock to the system when people understand like what this lived experience has been. And the interesting thing going back to where this conversation started was something about, you know, this murder of George Floyd shocked the system enough to make everyone look at it and just see it for what it was. Mm-hmm. You couldn't deny it any longer. There was no angle to say that, no, this is just fundamentally wrong and how could this, the dream can't be true if this can happen in America in broad daylight. Mm-hmm. And so now, now we are you know, where we are and I think it's, um, ultimately it's a, it's a ripe opportunity for growth and to, to do what you hear like most presidents say in the State of the Union, to make this a more perfect union, like move us forward. To, to advance us forward. Um, and hopefully, you know, we can stay focused and not lose sight of the opportunity that exists for us in this moment. And I, I couldn't agree more. And I, you know, I, I will say this, and, um, you know, for those who are listening who uh, who don't work, most of you won't work in DNI. I, I, I do look at it like this, that, you know what, I, it's a tough job for me to do right now. You know, I'm trying to help the corporation navigate this. I'm trying to help people on their allyship journey. I'm also trying to be really thoughtful and, and caring about, you know, the black community because I know, um, you know, the impact and the trauma this is. Um, but you know what? Do raise your voice and, and push, right? And you know, it's not something I actually—I'll be honest with you. If you didn't push, my job would be easier. Uh, but your job is to also push. Your job is to create 
clear expectations of what you think the organization should do. They're not always going to do it. Most of the time they won't. Um, but if you don't push, you know, your DNI person, not just your DNI person, push your leaders, push the people who have influence, use your voice to say what you think we should be doing. Um, and don't look at your DNI person to have right. every answer, right? Like they should be have a strategy. They should be racking them up. They should be closer to this than anybody else in the company. That is their job. Um, but it is also, you know, a job that comes with, you know, you you are serving the corporation, right? And you are trying to think about navigating politics and figuring out policy and who do you need to check all. Like there's these other pieces that go behind the scenes that make it complex. Um, but employees should use their voice, too, because they actually live that day to day culture. Right. And so um, I, I'd highly encourage you, if there's something that you want to see in your company, use your voice to push for this is now if we're not asking for things now uh, to your point. This moment can pass. You can already feel that we were in a different place when things were burning, when everything was burning around us. Everybody was ready. That That's what really got, I think, us here is that when you saw fires going up in South Minneapolis and then around the country. When you saw things burning coast to coast, you know, when you saw these massive police presence uh, with unnecessary force in so many cities across America, it created just this uh, this unique. It was almost like a war zone. It was almost like we were back in 68 or 92, but we weren't. Mm. It was different. Right. It was different. It was bigger almost. And so um, but you can feel that fading right a week later. You can kind of feel already the foot's a little bit off mm. the gas. Who knows where we're at yeah. in four weeks, right? And so you need to be asking for things right now and raising yeah. that voice and, and right getting now. it to your point, getting strategies put in place, getting KPIs against those strategies put in place so that we could measure and kind of see how we're actually progressing. Because, you know, the adrenaline rush passes. Like I, I recorded a special episode of uh, Bootstraps last week just because, you know, it was Wednesday morning and – it was just an, an inundation, you know, of calls and texts and emails that were coming from all these white allies, whether they were new white allies or longtime white allies of like, you know, a lot of folks like I didn't know. Um, and folks who did know, it was like, how are you doing? And it became somewhat overwhelming. And the thing that I, one of the things that I decided to do is I wanted to record that episode to get it out there as a resource. To like to help one black people be able to hear other black people with something to lose actually speaking full throated about our experience. There's something that is cathartic for black people in mass when they hear that. It's the reason why Colin Kaepernick, you know, became has become a true icon in the black community. Because he came out and said what we thought and what we felt. And he said it with something to lose. And so I wanted to record that episode with um, another brother, uh, Ryan Potato vertner who's the, the founder and the head of uh, Smoketown Consulting, because we both had something to lose, but we wanted to be able to say what was on our heart and what was on our minds. But then also, uh, we wanted it to be a resource that people could pass around. It's like, if you want to really know and understand and get into the mindset of what the lived black experience is, here's a resource for you to listen to and kind of get that experience so you can better understand it. And in that conversation, one of the things we talked about is it's inevitable. You cannot live off of peak adrenaline forever. It's biologically, it's impossible. Mm. And 
the adrenaline rush of this moment is going to subside, but our focus doesn't need to. You know, when we decide to focus and commit to something, human beings are capable of just about anything. I mean, right now we're having a real-time conversation that I'm able to record that you're in Minneapolis, I'm here in the Bay Area, I'm going to be able to record, edit, and put this out to the entire world digitally. There will never be a physical composition of this conversation. That's because humans are committed to figuring out how to improve communication. Excuse me. And we've been able to. So if we want to commit to solving this issue, we need to be able to commit to it long-term and want to focus on it long beyond the adrenaline rush of the moment. Mm-hmm. And I was, uh, you know, and, and to that point, I was, uh, you know, we were talking, uh, I was talking on a call and uh, this idea that somebody was pushing for what is, you know, I want, I, I love the verbal allyship. I appreciate your, your love and support, but what are you going to do to act? How are you going to act in, you know, there's some people like I'm not sure what action action looks like, and you know, I shared with the I shared with the group that to me the most powerful um, the most powerful allyship in American history was white abolitionists, right? If you think about, there was white abolitionists from day one who were fighting against slavery, few in number, but they actually knew inherently the evil of slavery and chattel slavery as an institution, and they 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 full fledged their support behind it, and there's plenty of instances of that, of that allyship. You know, you even think about us, you know, you know me, I was talking a lot about mm. Frederick Douglass and, you know, William Lloyd Garrison, you know, the white abolitionist uh, who actually was the first person to give uh, Frederick Douglass that platform, right? To, to give him that, that, that first opportunity to speak. And that opportunity led to um, what I consider the greatest order mm. in American history, right? And so, you know, when people tell me, like, I don't know what allyship looks like, I tell them there's plenty of instances mm. of it out there, right? Like, don't, um, you know, I, I know you're coming to me and you're asking me what I need, but I also need you to look at what do you value? You know, what, what matters to you? What are the principles upon which you stand? And what are you going to mm. do for those principles? How are you going to live the values mm. that you have, right? Because this, at the end of the day, is about values. This is about the collective society which mm-hmm. we want to have. Right. And if your point, your point is well taken that if we make a decision now, the problem has always been, how do you get us to make a decision? But you know what? It does feel like right now in this moment as a society, we've collectively said that the policing system as it exists just does not work anymore for us in its current shape or form. And we have we have to reform it. Right. Some people want to just completely throw it away and start anew. Right. And so. I feel like we have that collective agreement. Yeah, I think I think that's fair. It's a it's a, a moment in which we can see the humanity that exists in every other person. You know, the thing that I said to a few folks who reached out to me last week when this was all still real brand new, I was like, "What needs to happen is when we see the systemic oppression." And when we, when we see the explicit bias and when we see the implicit bias, like the subtlety that holds black people down and or literally murders black people, as a white ally, you need to care as much 
as if that happened to a white person. Like, mm-hmm. the, the shocking part of this, like, what kind of, I guess, illustrates for me the fact that some people just don't care about black lives in, this, in the same way, is when you just look at this particular group of people who have been, I am staunchly against Black Lives Matter. There was a, if you were to map out a Venn diagram, there was a massive overlap of those same people who got fed up and were protesting the quarantine due to COVID. And they were on the steps of state capitals, armed to the teeth. And they were in support of those protests, of people being armed to the teeth, saying they just wanted to be out of the house and the right to go get their hair done or whatever it was that they were willing to shoot people over. So you have people who supported that protest and then just a few weeks later mm-hmm. they, did, they did not support unarmed peaceful protesters who are saying we just want you to stop murdering black people. That's where you see like in a very crystallized form that there's this thing in our society where there's a population of folks who explicitly don't care about black people as much. But then as you start to expand that away from folks who or you can easily point out is is being discriminatory. You have well-intentioned people mm-hmm. who can just go on about their day and either not know or when they see it, they can compartmentalize and just move on from the fact that this black body was just broken and murdered. Mm-hmm. And if you can move on from that, but you can't move on from, like if that had happened in, you know, me living here in the Bay Area, if, if what happened to George Floyd had happened to a white person in you know, Orinda or in the marina out in San Francisco, mm-hmm. would people be able to just move on from that? Like, my, my assumption is no. We've n- I've never seen it happen in those communities. Um, but my assumption is they would not, based upon everything else I've seen in history. You know, you got people who are still upset about... I'm not going to even get into those examples because I don't, I don't want to conflate. I don't want to conflate struggles because that's, that's really not the goal. But... The, yeah. To put a button on yeah. the point and yeah. not to be long-winded about it, it's when it happens to well-intentioned folks, you need to care as much when it happens to black people mm-hmm. as much as you would if it happened to anyone else along the intersectionality map. And that's really what Black Lives Matters is about. It's like, we want to matter as much as everyone else. Yeah. Yep. And, and, you know, the other piece, so in, in within our community, you know, we we haven't had a lot of time to talk either, right? So we, we've been talking about what we want to move on, but there's conversations in the Black community that we mm-hmm. still have to have, right? There's conversations around gender. There's conversations around yep. sexual orientation. There's conversations about colorism. There's conversations about, you know, economics and socioeconomic status that we have that because we, we, we are far from mm-hmm. a monolith, right? Like, that's the other piece of this. We end up coming across as like, this is one of the few things in all of, you know, humanity that Black people are fully <laughs> behind. <laughs> we were all behind this, right? There's a few people out there, but this is the one where you can get us all together and it's really hard to get us all together anymore because we just have so much diversity within our community. You can't have this many millions of people and not have this allowed a lot of diversity. Right? Yep. It's just impossible, right? And so um, 
you know, we're not a monolith. And I, and I think that's the other piece of, I, I gave some ally tips and I said, I told people, if you want to have, you know, I appreciate people who want to engage their black friends and coworkers and say, Hey, would you help mentor me or help me help teach me about race? And, and my point to, to, to the group was, you know what, let's start off by, you need to just have a great relationship with me for that to even mm. almost be on the table. Right. Like, let's really start off with you and me just need to have a good working relationship where I value you, value me. There's a mutual level of respect and um, a rapport before we actually and if we have that, if we have that kind of relationship and you come to me, when you come to me, I know mm-hmm. it's a place of sincerity. Right. I know it's not a thing in the moment. I know it's actually, you know, it's not because you feel guilty about what's going on. It's because you recognize that a large part of my existence is causing me great amounts of pain and that you actually want to show care and concern and figure out what is that pain? How can I help with that pain? What can I actually do? And What should I be doing in my own life? Um, because it's not mm-hmm. fair that you have this pain, right? And so, you know, that when you reframe it like that, you know, versus, hey, I know we casually know each other in the office, but I would love for you to be mine. Now, some black people, I told them, like, this is my opinion. Some black people are completely open to being that mentor. Um, and power and kudos to you. But I'm telling people, if you want to do this, you know, first just have a great, strong relationship with the person and then go from there. Because that, that's authentic. And that actually means it'll be sustained over time and not a one-time thing because yeah, no, I think that's caught in the moment. Completely real. And the, the succinct way I would put it, and I've actually had a lot of conversations about this over the past couple of weeks where there are folks who have reached out kind of sensitive like yeah are you open out this conversation with me I'm like of course it's you because they've shown up in my life in a real way long before this and the way in which I think about it is if you have intentionally for whatever whatever your motives may be if you've intentionally chosen to not know me and not have a relationship with me like we've had opportunities to bond and connect and get to know each other and you've chosen the opposite no hard feelings. It's not even because you're racist. Like, I don't think that at all. But you've chosen for whatever reason to not have a relationship with me. Cool. You also then don't have the license, though, to reach out and have a deep conversation with me about race. But conversely, if you've chosen to know me and get to know me in a very real, non-condescending, trivial way, I don't even allow those relationships in my life to begin with. But if you've genuinely invested in me and try to get to know me, we've built a level of mutual respect in a relationship that's not a fair-weather relationship, then yes, I'm completely happy to have these in-depth conversations with you about what my experience has been like and how you can be a better ally and to be able to go back within your circles and hold these conversations as well. Because um, there, there's a trust that's there, right? There's a, there's, a, there's a respect because you've shown up and ultimately it's, it's, you, you put the you put the time and your actions in. And so before I let you uh, get out of here, you know, on, on all my episodes, I tend to ask these questions. And, and they normally take this, this journey, you know, where a lot of people understand, like, who you are. Do we go back and understand your kind of whole life's path and how you've gotten to this particular place? But today I felt that this, this topic was too important, especially given your role as such a, a loud voice in DNI. And I know how well-read you are on the topic, on how much time and energy and intellect you've invested into it. So our whole conversation is kind of focused around DNI. So people didn't really get to get your um, journey. Um, but 
That said, I want to still get the, the classic four questions I ask of um, every guest that comes on this show. And one of those questions is, if you were to describe your journey in one word, you know, what would that one word be? Mm. Yeah, it's, uh, it's funny how you have one word and then you, uh, you think about it and you have another word. Um, you know what, my, my, my journey, um, I'd almost say it, and I don't know if this is the perfect word to describe it, I, but I view myself as a bridge, hmm. be bridge. And I say that because, you know, my journey has been um, a large part of who I am today is both the fact of the, that I'm half black, half white. So my dad's a German, my mom's black, and they uh, they separated when I was pretty young. I uh, still had a great relationship. My mom raised me. My, I had a great relationship with my dad. Uh, but I always felt, you know, I, I had, you know, I was in this black culture with my mom's side of the family, but I was also in this white culture. And I was always mm. the bridge between the two. You know, I've always been the bridge between, you know, my older half-sister and my cousin. You know, a bridge between... Uh, the white homies right. and the black homies, right? And so in a lot of ways, I do think my lived experience um, uh, is, you know, in a lot of ways, I'm a bridge between different worlds because I can see both right. worlds. I think, so I think that it, it allows you to have the perspective that's needed to, to be successful at this work, too. Because I think empathy is, and being able to see things from someone else's perspective is vital. And if you if you can't do that, then you'll be ineffective in being able to be, to your point, a bridge. So that's what's up. If, 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 uh, I think one of the things that's really important to the, to the black male experience is always being able to maintain your composure as well. I mean, and the reason why it's always been so important in our, our parents, you know, kind of ingrained it in us is because you never, you don't want your, your boys when they're outside of the home to end up having to interact with the state, in particular, interact with the police. Um, so being able to co compose yourself has always been an important trait to, to maintain. And so that leads to another question of, tell, tell us about a time in which the proverbial day, someone has gone low and deeply offended you, and you chose to go high. And the fact that you went high, um, that that it ended up being turning out to be in your best interest. Yeah, you know, this one for me is um, the they is, you know, my mother, um, you know, I think we both have this, this shared experience yeah. of losing our mothers, um, you know, somewhat early on in life. And, um, you know, when I lost my mother right after graduating college, you know, I had to talk to all her bill collectors. I talked to the bill collectors. I talked to the insurance companies. I talked to the bank she had done yeah. business with for 20 years. And, um, you know, never in my life have I received such cold and callous treatment. You know, I was uh, 21 years old. My mother had passed, and I had found myself with the responsibility of raising my brother and sister. Um, and no one cared. Not a single one of these institutions mm. showed me any, any, any bit of empathy or concern or support. You know, and um, I, I always come back and memorize and, and thinking about that experience because 
what it could have done is it could have made me very bitter, right? It could have made me just just mm. a, a ball of anger, right? And um, But I realized that was never going to serve me. But what it did do to me and what it has done for me is that it's always a reminder that, you know, the core of these institutions, you have to be real careful with. And when it's in their advantage to mistreat you or take advantage of you, uh, they very mm. much can and will, right? And <clears throat> I'm at a point now where financially, you know, I um, I don't have that problem, right? That That's not... That's not the problem I have, but that experience has left with me just a reminder that uh, those who are often the least fortunate in our society are the ones who are also taken mm -hmm. advantage of the most. And um, I will never forget that. And so I, I'd say I took the high road simply by not letting that um, ill treatment, that just blatant disrespect for my mom's life and humanity mm -hmm. and how they treated me uh, turn me into someone bitterly mm -hmm. uh, negative. Yeah, I think I think happen. that's important to like release. You always hear folks say, "Forgive not for the person who has wronged you, but for yourself." Because if you don't forgive, mm -hmm. like you're going to carry the weight of that, and what that's going to do to you, and the path that's going to send you down. Ultimately, you're going to become a part of your own demise because of your inability to forgive and move on for for your own best interest. Um. Moving on, I want to understand, like, what's your definition of success? Like, how do you, how do you um, manage your life, right? This is not something that needs to be a universal definition of success. But when you think about what you prioritize and, then, and the decisions you make, what are you working towards? Yeah, and I, and I do uh, appreciate you putting out that I, I don't think there is any one definition of success, but I think there are all a lot of ingredients, right? And so for me, those ingredients, you know, start very much with my, my family and those closest to me. And, um, you know, if nothing else in this world, if you don't value those relationships, and for me, um, you know, making sure that I have, you know, a closeness with the people who are closest to me um, is most important, right? So I have to have you know, and I have to be a person who prioritizes my family and my friends um, for without them, who am I? Um, I think the, the, the internal piece for me of success is, um, you know, I do think we are all been given and granted a unique and uh, indelible gift that is on us to unlock, right? Like, I think we absolutely, everyone has this uniqueness. I have a few ideas of what mine is. And so for me, if I'm not actively working towards the ultimate achievement and expression of my gifts, mm. it feels like a day wasted, right? And so a daily, a day of success for me means very much using what I think God has given me, just me, what he gave me, and taking the time, my energy, my willpower, my mind power to perfecting that gift and to bring that gift to life mm. in the way only I can. Right. And so it is very much about my gift. Um, but then the, the, the other piece of me that very much and hopefully this has come through as we've talked today is that I do very much believe that it is upon us to create a world mm. uh, that we want. Right. I, I do believe that it is too easy mm. to be cynical. Um, it is too easy to pass the buck. It is too easy to look to others to become the change. Um, when not, honestly, we have to be we have mm. to be the change we seek. It has to start with us individually. And so for me, 
Um, that does mean I have to carve out time. I have to make sure I'm engaged in meaningful progress of what I think, um, how we mm -hmm. should elevate the human condition, right? And so, um, you know, for me, if I'm able to, you know, look back on my deathbed and I'm surrounded by and people, you even let's just go to my funeral. If I'm at my funeral and people are talking about me, um, you know, I hope my family is smiling and crying and laughing at the man I was for them and that my memory will live on. I hope my friends and colleagues are talking about me and, you know, the impact I had on them, the impact mm -hmm. I had on the world um, and the legacy I left behind. And, um, you know, you, you stack in a couple zeros, yeah. so my seeds will be okay. And uh, a couple nice suits here and there um, and a, a little bit of travel. And brother, Indeed. I'll say, well, I can, I I can promise thing. you one thing, man, that you, you will be, you will be talked about. <laughs> we'll, we'll make sure that we keep the stories, you know, appropriate <laughs> for public consumption, but you will, you will be talked about. Um, and, and the last question before um, I'll let you get out of here. There's a lot of weight and just perpetual toxicity that kind of comes with, you know, this black male lived experience. Um, I saw a, a, a video that's going viral this morning that Dave Chappelle released. He says, anyone that survives being black in America is his hero because it, just, it can be, it can feel so heavy, you know, um, at times. But there's also a lot of dopeness and awesomeness that comes with being a black man. And so don't want to be, you know, just woe is me. And so with that framing in that context, um, what is it that you love the most about being a black man? Mm. I think for me, the piece that has been um, the most uh, joy, that's given me the most energy, that has motivated me, that has lifted my spirit in the rough, roughest of times is uh, my, my kinship and my fellowship mm. with other Black men, right? And uh, my ability to have, you know, groups of men, you know, similar to yourself, who surround me both in my best of times and my worst of times, that we can share off of a drawn experience. And, and more importantly, and most importantly, that we can build together, both build each other up, but build to something um, even greater. I, I just feel I've been fortunate to have, to have circles of black men in my life who um, I've, I've felt that with, you know, and um, that's something that is unique. It's something that it can't actually be fully described. It's something that is, uh, it cuts to the core of my identity, you know, and, in a lot of ways, that's what allows this to happen. And so, yeah, I think the dopest thing for me about being a black man, black man is to be um, able to surround myself with other black men and together mm. to build something greater than any one individual could do. That's what's up, soul. man. Well, I am completely honored and appreciative that you took the time to get on bootstraps and to be able to share so clearly and eloquently your your knowledge and your experience um just through your your professional craft but then also your your lived experience and uh i would just say stay safe stay healthy and uh maybe let's do a let's 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 see about doing a a revisit to this a year from now to see where society is and how well we've we've sustained our our focus on trying to address systemic racism I appreciate you, brother. I appreciate the time and, and the venue. And uh, I love what you're doing with the podcast, man. It is uh, uplifting brothers everywhere. And so 